Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode is the first in what will likely be a three-part series where Esri and I sit down to recap and discuss the essay documentary film series by Adam Curtis from 2002, The Century of the Self. This episode, we discuss parts one and two, happiness machines and the engineering of consent. So first and foremost, we understand the Foucauldian skepticism of self-management. You know, there's yeah. this general movement described in Foucault's history of sexuality from power through repression that gets transformed to like power through articulation. Getting you to talk about yourself actually becomes the predominant mode of domination getting you to think about yourself and to express yourself more right. so than trying to eliminate thoughts about yourself or shove down your self-expression. It's kind of a meditation on how liberal societies can control you. And while I think that that is, you know, it's, it's a worthwhile avenue for critique, there is a tendency there that can become, you know, totalizing in the way that only critical theory can <laughs> mm-hmm. that it's it's not totalizing in a religious sense where it gives you both a path to salvation and a path to damnation or something along those lines you basically only get a totalizing path to damnation where <laughs> any attempt to articulate yourself or think about yourself is necessarily and i don't know if this is on the page but the kind of skepticism that comes out of it that you get from Foucauldians is so totalizing and suffocating that there is basically no way out. And the contemporary left is so, at risk of sounding a bit crass, driven mad with this paranoia of self-articulation to the point that you get, you know, symbolic thought, formalization, the ego itself... All of these things are basically traps, ideological cul-de-sacs inherently. Kind of, but at the same time, you also see a lot of this language of like self-care thrown about as like an as a remedy to activist burnout. And, you know, it's also full of people who this is a problem that Adam Curtis, you know, keeps coming up against kind of everybody is there for their own little moment or to do their own little thing or express their own little set of signifiers rather than give themselves up to like a cause that's bigger than themselves. Right. And for Adam Curtis, this poses a tremendous political problem. Now that's not so much present in this one specifically. What we watched was the century of the self. This is basically more about what Foucault was perhaps responding to. What's interesting in all of Adam Curtis's documentaries, he tells a story, you know, he's telling a story because he says it at the beginning. This is a story about X, right? This is a story about this. And he's taking these kind of complex phenomena and reducing it to this narrative of how influential 
intellectuals were able to help shape history in the 20th century. Now, it's kind of a reductive narrative, but there's a lot of truth to it. And I think what's useful about this is that instead of the, you know, not just Foucault, but Debord also has this very totalizing view of things that, the, you know, you, it's hard to imagine escape an escape from. What's kind of cool about the way that Curtis approaches this question is that he really finds the historical contingencies in the development of this, of this world. To respond, I get it from Adorno, negative dialectics. You know, it's the negative totality. It's the same kind of like suffocating and ultimately sort of conservatizing like point of view that there's no way out. And so whereas Foucault is like talking about the move from repression to articulation, this episode, episode one, Happiness Machines of Century of the South by Adam Curtis is all about how Freudian psychology became accepted. You know, it starts off with how Viennese society used to hate Freud. And a hundred years later, you have the psychoanalyst's ball and it's a big gala. Yeah. And it's uh, one thing I really do like, because yeah, it starts out kind of outlining what the whole thing is going to be about. And the whole series is basically about how he doesn't explain it this way, but what it is about is how capitalist society metastasizes Freudianism. It starts out and he basically explains the story of like how Sigmund Freud's ideas were used to basically control the masses, essentially. Um, but but then one of the earliest sections takes place. And this kind of goes back to er, like Adam Curtis's earlier history of making this kind of uh, cheekily edited sort of work. Like his stuff was kind of he did kind of make like popular shows for the for the BBC. Right. So we get to the yeah, the psychoanalysis ball, which is like some of the sketchiest shit. Like the guy's basically explaining like who's there and he's like in this thick like austrian accent like um yeah it's it's psychoanalysts it's it's uh patients uh, former patients this is the psychotherapy board psychotherapists come some advanced patients come or former patients come and many other people friends but also um, um uh, people from the viennese society who like to go to a Nice, elegant, comfortable boy. Uh, it's uh, people from high society, but it's like right there. Like you, you, you also sit, like watching it, just get the sense that like you know there was like the after party is like some eyes wide shut <laughs> shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it looks like it looks like a czarist ball. It feels very decrepit. Like this is like some weird like old world hangover, like Bohemian Grove or some shit like that. But he uses that. In a nice little. I knew, I knew you were gonna bring up Bohemian Grove. <laughs> well, no, it's what it's what is it? yeah, anyway. But yeah, 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 totally, totally. It, it's got Bohemian vibes, like eyes wide shut vibes to it, and just the fact that he's basically admitting you have like these like ancient decrepit psychoanalysis bringing like their former patients there. You're basically it's basically grooming, and they're mixing in with like high society, old old money, and old aristocrats and. Again, like this, this is Jeffrey Epstein shit, but yeah, what it drives home is that psychoanalysis is obviously become a tool of power. This is something I'm very sympathetic to. There's a whole section of Sheila Myth Firestones, the dialectic of sex, talking about Freudianism as essentially the misguided feminism, as how it takes all the insights about power psychology from feminism and turns it into a recuperating tool of, of society. But this scene does make a nice little dissolve where he dissolves back to the original Viennese society, contrasting it, explaining that 
you know, Freud's ideas back then, far from being this thing that people go to a ball to celebrate, were very, it was very threatening to the kind of Victorian social order by introducing these kind of unconscious forces that are deliberately repressed in order to maintain social reproduction. Uh, from here, we bring in Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays. Adam Curtis basically argues that this guy is kind of responsible for Freudianism as we know it and was arguably more influential to human society than Freud, even though most people haven't heard of him. He's introduced, he's basically early on the ground floor of the development of public relations, and he was responsible for bolstering the view of Woodrow Wilson as this kind of liberator figure who is going to bring peace and enlightenment following for the First World War at the Paris Peace Conferences. Yeah, he, he gets invited to become part of the Committee of Public Information and basically spins the U.S. intervention in Europe as making the world safe for democracy, not as oh, we're going to go defend the European regimes. We're going to go restore them to power. Or, you know, we're going to go restore the balance of power in Europe. Or even, you know, we're going to go knock down their bullshit and French Revolution them. You know, it's it's more complicated than that. We're going to make the world safe for democracy was the spin. Right. It made Woodrow Wilson, you know, hero of the masses. Right, of course. And, of course, the whole thing was fraudulent, much like the treaty. <laughs> Bernays eventually gets the idea, if we could do this like for a wartime, could we do it for peacetime? And he starts to dig into his uncle's theory of the unconscious and tries to apply it to his field. And the first thing he does, like the birth of like modern PR and modern uh, advertising, is him using the suffragette movement to get women to smoke cigarettes. <laughs> he gets a bunch of debutantes at this Easter parade, which at the time was a big thing in New York, to step out into the parade. And he leaked the word to a bunch of press so they would all see it. They'd all light up cigarettes at the same time. And he said, speaking for the debutantes, that they referred to them as freedom torches, right? Yeah. And this broke this huge taboo. And the reason he got he got into this idea that women would want to smoke was that, according to classic Freud, uh, the cigarette symbolizes the penis or the phallus. Right. And so women who were at the time seeking a bigger place in society – suffragettes liberation all that stuff that this would be basically a tool for that and that smoking would symbolize that you were like on the same level as man because you had your own penis right yeah a penis of her own that <laughs> certainly explains my smoking habits um and this comes out of now they said that freud invents the fetish but i mean if you read marx it's in there right um is that irrelevant objects gain this personal power it's something that freud articulates in totem and taboo you know, he applies this more than he invents it. This intentional propagandizing during peacetime is done through the Council of Public Relations. It's an intentional attack on the homo economicus sort of rational actor idea. I'm speaking slightly anachronistically, um, but it's pretty, pretty close. You know, humans aren't these like rational actors just deliberating based on information. They have these unconscious, irrational primate desires. Uh, World War One confirms this for Freud. The film admits that Freud thought World War I was a good idea because it would, you know, get some of these primate yayas out. Um, <laughs> but basically, like, now that we know that there are, that, you know, Freud's theory of these irrational drives is confirmed, you know, we can use this in peacetime to get women to smoke by giving them penis torches. Of an <laughs> in individuality. Um, and it's extraordinarily effective because after this, yeah, you start to see women smoking in movies and it becomes this like, you know, again, if you think about like classic cinema from the time, like all the most like sophisticated, powerful women in the movies smoke cigarettes. 
Uh, but it's also interesting that like the birth of this is capitalism rationally like appropriating feminism in order to make money. <laughs> right. That's that's so it's such an that's so American. It really go, goes to show like how deep this shit kind of runs. Yeah. And um, the next section of the movie is all about the fear of crises of overproduction. Yeah, that's what's interesting. And like this, this idea of basically appealing to people because the way they saw it, individuals like maximizing, getting people what they need. Capitalism had more or less, I mean, maybe it hadn't, but more or less it accomplished market saturation in terms of meeting people's needs. You know, you can look in the Sears catalog and you can order your sewing machine and you can order your fabrics. And that was that. So it was faced with this problem of how do we, how do we get people to buy more stuff? How do we manufacture more needs? And so they turned to this guy to use like these, these psychoanalytic concepts in order to create consumer culture, create this culture where consuming commodities serves to meet deeply unconscious needs. And it's the beginning of like the modern form of capitalism and the modern form of, I mean, this is what fosters addiction, right? Like this is an addiction model where you're basically turning to these things to meet these like deep like psychological problems or or needs or desires that these things just can't do right right yeah you're inducing demand so you're advertising not well this sewing machine has 2000 gidgets and 5000 widgets so that it can sew better you're advertising on fetish you can induce you know so called irrational demand there's a move to make people think of themselves less as workers more as consumers Previously, consumption was thought of as luxury goods for, you know, the owning class. Now, advertising based on desire is for everybody. Um, you have consumption for everybody. Um, you have a move from needs to desires. And I think it's interesting that he grounds this in the fear of crises of overproduction. If you're a Marxist, you might recognize crises of overproduction from Rosa Luxemburg's economic writings. And this was sort of before um, a sort of debate in uh, economics crystallizes, but as we know it today, Marxists tend to focus on the falling rate of profit as the root of crises, whereas, you know, Rosa Luxemburg, as Rosa Luxemburg's theory is, is focusing more on demand, right? It's, it's not as much of a profit, you know, uh, it's, it's a demand-driven crisis explanation. And, this movie grounds grounds this like advertising on fetish, this addiction model in trying to stave off this particular crisis tendency, which is essentially presented as the crisis tendency affecting the United States. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is, and what's other also very sinister about this is it also shows how Bernays was able and the uh, to for capitalism take the serialization produced by mass society and figure out how to use it to sell shit to people right in other words individualism is seen as like this salve for being a cog in this broader you know social machine curtis visually represents this by showing these broad scenes of crowds with with men with all of the same hat on right this is the era where everybody everybody wore a suit everybody wore a top hat and yeah, you know, everybody looked more or less the same. And because it was the industrial era, you just it was standard issue stuff. And you can even see this to a certain extent in like I remember if you read about like Bordica's like vision of communism, 
he talks about you get your cheese, you get your suit, you get your you know, you get your standard set of things. But one milk, does, one bread, one food, that's all. This is, you know, deeply spiritually unfulfilling to people. So the solution that capitalism comes up with is to broaden the array of commodities and have people invest their sense of individuality in the things that they purchased. Right? It's very sinister and you know, as always, Curtis has like the good like you know, eerie music underneath it to to illustrate this. Um, <laughs> he also he also ties this into um, the beginning of car culture, where cars are, of course, phallus. You know, they're just you know big cocks, like cock symbols, right? And right. Uh, and stock portfolios. So just driving more at the crisis tendency stuff. Um, stock the stock market. This is all like proto Keynesian stuff. So well, yeah, like, this, is, this is the birth of like the socialization yeah. of the market. Yeah, so stock portfolios, again, is investment just for the ruling class? No, investment can be for everyone. You can invest in the stock market, you know, as as someone that's just a wage earner. Wow, cool. I can be, I can be wrong. Yeah, I could be part of capitalism's growth. I, you know, it's not just me getting my shitty wage through the value form. Um, I can benefit from, you know, the expansion of capitalism. Neat. Great. Yeah, and this guy was so like adept he had clients from all different sections celebrities companies publishing and he was able to merge with them all and basically also more or less invents cross promotion and creates this like nexus of you know self yes basically self-generation promotion um and this also becomes very useful to segment freud freud re-enters the picture because you know in vienna there's very bad economy he went broke he writes to his nephew for help so bernays arranges to have Freud's works published for the first time in America. And he also uses his acumen as a publicist to basically trade on the scandalous nature of Freud's writing, particularly for Protestant America. And so he trades on kind of the bad, like, oh, can you believe this? Can you believe that? Um, Until he eventually becomes established as like a major, like intellectual influence in America. And then he trades on the fact that Freud is his uncle. (laughs) And that he can apply Freud. He can apply Freud's insights to sell people shit. Uh, he proposes to his uncle that, why don't you write for Cosmopolitan, a women's mental place in the home? What do you say, Uncle Siggy? You know, and Freud, I don't think, writes that article. <laughs> yeah, he, like Adam Curtis basically said, like, Freud hated America. Uh, he was increasingly like more pessimistic about humanity and... Just kind of like retreated to the country. Yeah, basically. yeah. Black pill intensifies, um, and you know that's 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 kind of fitting because you know interwar Europe is not a very optimistic place. Um, right. You know, you you, you see, especially uh, Vienna. You know what I mean? In Austria, you're you're feeling the boilings of fascism starting to bubble up. It's not quite here yet, but the, it's the situation that leads to it. Now in Thanatos, you know, there's Eros and Thanatos as these like drives that Freud starts to re- uh, starts to articulate, and Freud starts seeing Thanatos as winning out this death drive. So there's a Freudian deflation of the October Revolution, which is the only time the Soviet Union really comes up in this whole monologue here, and uh, democracy. Walter Lippmann comes up with this 
you know, managing the bewildered herd and as an alternative to democracy. And there is this birth of the this, you know, butthole theory of self that I somehow I'm, I'm using my own language. But, you know, that I sometimes reference where, you know, people are really just reacting. People, you know, crowds and masses and whatever, you know, are they really individuals or are they really just like twitching buttholes, like firing neurons and making decisions they don't understand? And this whole, like, essentially this kind of like enlightened despotism that comes out of a sort of Darwinian liberalism. This is where Marxism is useful to counter this stuff because Marxism points out how there is even in people's irrationality there is a certain like kernel of rationality to it particularly in aggregate but it's also a question of scaling up because you know as we see in mass society people's rational interests at a certain level of abstraction don't necessarily translate to being rational interests at a broader level so this way of like thinking about like mankind is rational or irrational is yeah basically it comes from, yeah, this kind of social Darwinism produced by capitalism. Another thing that's interesting is that Hoover, Herbert Hoover is very enthusiastic with these ideas. Uh, he's the one who coins the term happiness machines, which it, what he, how he describes what they've turned people into and how this is the, this is the future, a future basis for American society. And he wasn't wrong. But what he was wrong about was that it would happen in the near term. And they describe this scene where uh, Bernays who we see actually like modern interviews with him in the nineties. And he's just like this decrepit ghoulish figure, like doddering around the house and talking about how, how cool Calvin Coolidge was. Uh, <laughs> it's like a mirror universe, Gene Roddenberry, basically. Yeah. And, and Coolidge, by the way, 1924, Adam Curtis kind of benchmarks the Coolidge administration as being the first time that PR and politics, like domestic politics really come together and there's a sort of like ad blitz campaign for, but by and how Calvin Coolidge, what a guy, you know, where they have Wait, like we, celebrities coming in. Yeah. So yeah, you got celebrities coming in and, you know, making him seem like, like a man's man. You, there's the, he describes a scene where Bernays organized this event where they were showcasing like the wonders of capitalism. It was on the eve of the stock market crash, basically. Oh yeah. The 50th anniversary of the light bulb. <laughs> yeah. And so the next section is on capitalist crisis. There's a guy who comes in to describe civilization and its discontents. And he kind of sounded like me, like giving a community college presentation on it when I hadn't studied or anything. It's like a civilization and it, it makes people discontent. And because people are discontent, like you, you never really have civilization. And Man doesn't want to be civilized. And he is, as a, civilization uh, brings discontent. But it's necessary to survive, otherwise he couldn't survive. So he must be discontent. But yeah, having read that book, it's a pretty one-sided view of the book, but it's also not totally wrong. Like it is an expression of his pessimism, and Freud does believe that you know repression is essential to civilization. But also, there's a sort of ambivalence about this expressed throughout the book. Freud doesn't seem thrilled with this picture. Then we basically transition into the rise of the Nazi party following what Curtis portrays as a very chaotic situation in the Weimar Republic. I think they keep saying there were 32 parties. There were 32 parties. You can't have that many parties. That's too many. Hitler rises to power trying to tap into these libidinal forces where um, all your love is sort of given up to the leader and all your aggression is channeled to the outgroup people. They talk about how it, 
Then it kind of transitions into FDR, and they talk about how even amongst the Nazis, and they show a clip with Joseph Goebbels, a lot of people uh, in the political class are convinced that the capitalists pretty much fucked up. Um, although the capitalists aren't so convinced, there'll be some revenge on their part later. I want to focus a little bit on the the sort of proposed like managerial convergence between the Nazis and the New Deal that Adam mm-hmm. Curtis puts out there. Because at first, he's just directly comparing them. He makes the you know he talks about Nazi anti-democratic managerialism, direct totalitarian production. He doesn't use the word, but that's what he's talking about. Um, he really elides the USSR and the sort of the vanguard role that the Bolsheviks played in, like, um, you know, pioneering these forms that the Nazis uh, appropriated. Um, he gets into how Goebbels' propaganda is very much inspired by Bernays. Um, he goes into Joseph Goebbels' admiration of, <laughs> of like, New Deal, like, managerialism. Um, but then, yeah, the stuff about George Gallup is sort of, a spin on this managerialism where FDR believes that, you know, human beings are essentially rational and that humans can have some kind of, you know, the average human, the average person. And of course, asterisk, because, you know, whatever intersectional things being ignored here, of course, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But yes, the average human, the average citizen, the average white man voter, um, they're rational they, there can be demographic polling, scientific polling, in order to kind of push back on Bernays, like total enlightened despotism. I think one reason, just to talk about the, because yeah, the Soviet Union is absent here, uh, and they are a major player in this stuff. But I think the big difference is that uh, psychoanalysis was hated by the Communist Party in, in Russia. Right. So, whereas, whereas the Nazis were literate in psychoanalysis and exploiting it. Like right. ex- exploiting the same drives. Now, if you're a g- if you're a good player with people, you don't have to read. You don't have to read a playbook to know that people like daddies. You know what I mean? You can just sort of observe that shit. So it's almost like the Nazis like reverse engineered what was genius about you know like Bolshevization and Bolshevik appeals and that sort of thing for their own purposes. Well, and with. Bolshevism, I mean, with Stalin specifically, it was more kind of lapsing into kind of the relation that the state had always had to the broader, like, Russian peasantry, uh, you know, historically, um, where as, a, as opposed to the, this maybe maybe consciously cultivated using, because they also wanted to believe that people were basically rational, um, and but they'd had this sort of, like, hyper-deterministic view of class determining said rationality, right? Um, so the, the group... Yeah. The degree to which you were rational kind of depended on your class position. But anyway. Yeah, it's, I it's, mean, it's, in it's, a way, it's, it's, it's less consistent than the Nazi managerialism that has complete contempt for individuals and, you know, the average citizen or whatever, and basically just thinks of them as twitching buttholes that can't decide anything. I think that it also basically just lies beyond the purview of this story because again, like it's, it's basically about how society metastasizes or capitalist society specifically metastasizes psychoanalysis. Seems, you know, besides the point. <laughs> and honestly, watching this, maybe they were onto something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. We need to exterminate this knowledge of uh, Freudian drives. Surely that will get rid of it. That's, uh, I guess that's, that's what I find interesting about the, the USSR as a counterexample. Even if you shoot all the psychoanalysts, these dynamics are still out there. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, in some ways, psychoanalysis and even therapy really is just the 
like modern like Jung wasn't wrong about this. It's the modern form of guru culture. You're basically finding a guru who's going to be in they don't call it spiritual development, it's psychological development, but it's kind of the same shit. You know, there's there's different there's different for, different forms of accreditation and there's di- but it's kind of the same function. Yeah, I mean thinking about the mind and the self is, you know, certainly historically. Yeah, like in in, you know, the western canon there are differences. But you know, in general, yeah, we're talking about the soul here. We are talking about the spirit. We are t- and um so I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of truth to that. But Jake, I think one of the reasons that we're watching this is that we are both a little critical of the complete deflation of these things. Like, does that mean that, you know, no one should go to therapy and we shouldn't try to improve ourselves because, you know, this is a, this is just a shamanistic fetish. This is a bunch of bullshit. You know what I'm saying? Like, Uh I, like, I, listen, I've had a lot of bullshit therapists throughout my life. I've had, you know, transphobic therapists. I've had, I've had just a lot of not great experiences, but, you know, over the last couple of years, I, I had a therapist that really, help me get on the right path and that you know actually tangibly improved my outlook my thinking my performance in life so well and you, but you you hear that too about gurus though you you know it's like as it in, the, in pre-modern times what you do is you'd go to you'd go to some guy's hut and then maybe after after six months once you've survived all the fleas and gnats and all of his filth and him getting up at 3 a.m to scream at you and calling you know it basically about his dead wife, that you discover he actually does have like deep wisdom to impart. Or you realize that he's just a crazy hobo and you get out of there, right? And you go try and find a new guy that you've heard of who's a holy man. I mean, and I suppose I suppose so. But, you know, when you're when you're in a, you know, bureaucratic, rational capitalism, whatever, like you, you can go get a guru on the open market, see how that goes for you. Well, then yeah, you'll you'll kinda understand why psychological accreditation exists. Well, the, yeah, the modern version of, you know, you hear about, well, uh, you know, this is new form of like psychoanalysis and you, you go there and you gradually fall in love with your less than ethical uh, interlocutor. And pretty soon you're at a Vietnamese, Vietnamese ball being passed off to Jeffrey Epstein. You know? <laughs> so, well, and then, I, I think I think it's worth saying that the really good therapist I had was a was, was actually not like a, a psychoanalyst or like, a, you know, licensed uh, psychologist. He's a social worker. You know, you know, he's a LCSW. Um, so the act, and I should say also that the good psychiatrist that I found wasn't a psychiatrist at all. She's a psychiatric nurse practitioner. So the good experiences that I've had with therapy are out are outside, you know, the the actual like developed professional form of them. Right. It's much more in this like clinical application that I've actually found it helpful and the. You know, when I had private insurance and I could go to more expensive therapists and I could go to the, you know, psychiatrist from Grand Theft Auto uh, 4 or whatever, like, and he was basically, like, some of my psychiatrists were like, note for note, that fucking guy. Is it Grand Theft Auto 4? I think it's Grand Theft Auto 4. Um, I don't remember that game. Yeah, I, I don't know. It was well-reviewed at the time and no one remembers it now. I remember the point, his girlfriend at the end. Yeah, the point is that there is, like, uh, there is, you know... There's some scummy, like, uh, some scummy, like, uh, psychiatrist who just, like, writes people's scripts and doesn't give a shit. You know, I have had that experience. And, um, yeah, like, there are good practitioners out there, but they're rarely at the top of the totem pole. I mean, there's some bad ones at the bottom, too, who are like, you know, here, spray this into your mouth. Yeah, no, it totally works. Uh, no, yeah, you, you, can, you can use turmeric to cure your schizophrenia, 100%. 
Well, those people are rarely licensed. So you have unlicensed quacks. You have the top of the line, like, you know, society approved gurus. Then, you, you know, there's somewhere in there, somewhere in there, there are people that have guidance, that have things that are like worthwhile to say to you. Because I'm not so arrogant to think that we need no guidance. But then again, I also don't like trust the society or trust, you know, the benevolence of most people enough, frankly, when put in like when, when put in a position of authority to actually like help you out. <laughs> right. So it's a it's a deli- it's a sort of delicate place that I think mental health can really come from, you know, if because, you know, just fucking stumbling around in the world, you don't learn everything you need to learn to succeed. You just don't. Otherwise, everyone would be fine. Okay, so back to Adam Curtis. Moving on. Um, so I'll talk about Gallup polling for a second. So in the narrative of the film, and I think there's definitely something to this, the scientific polling that FDR employs is this way, almost unconsciously, to shore up this idea of the citizen, and but to do it in a way that utilizes some of the same tools as... Bernays and his wizards of unconscious manipulation are. Um, but one thing that is kind of funny, they do show this, like they do show this video or this, this clip of people devising like the scientific process by which they develop these polls. And it's just a bunch of like white guys sitting in a room. Like, um, how about, how about we say, uh, do you think he's doing a good or bad job? And they're like, that's a loaded question. Um, how would we phrase it differently? All right, does that sound good to you? All right, sounds good. All right. Well, how about this one? Do you think Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal has been bad for the nation in general? No, that question's loaded. It automatically suggests an answer. Well, how about this? Is your present feeling toward President Roosevelt one of general approval or general disapproval? That's better. Yeah, cool. Oh, yeah. They're developing, um, you know, the the ideas of, you know, what a loaded question is. Like, you know, how do you ask something as neutrally as possible? It's it, it's it reads pretty goofy in the film. But, if, you know, for people that devise social science like surveys, this is something that they spend quite a lot of energy on trying to come up with neutral ways to ask things that don't lead, that don't beg an answer, you know, that aren't. Uh, things on so how often do you beat your wife or when did you stop beating your wife you know like these you know but it, it does feel very much like i'm feeling this let's ask okay yeah sounds good let's get some what's let's uh what are we getting for lunch yeah uh, yeah get, welcome welcome to qualitative research methods we're <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> Why the polls be so wrong? That's a big question everyone's asking today. Is the polls all said, oh, Hillary, 95% people... chance, 85% chance. How could that have gone so wrong? Because I don't think that they talk to people. I think they just hang out in their conference room and be like, yeah, you feeling what I'm feeling? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, 47%. When did they do it? No one has ever asked me. And I also think if you're any sort of a normal person, if just somebody came walking up to you with a clipboard, like, hey, uh, who are you voting for president? You'd be like, hey, uh, none of your f-ing business. And you just walk away. The capitalists strike back with this propaganda campaign called the GM Parade of Progress. And you also see, and the World's Fair, and you see the, you know, the origins of the phrase, the word Futurama. Oh, yeah. It does say Futurama there. And also, uh, Democracy Day. <laughs> yeah, and this weird late, like, late 40s, early 50s 
like American capitalist utopianism that was kind of late, eulogized late, in the movie. Late, late 30s, late 30s, early 40s. Just... The late 30s, early 40s? Okay. Yeah, because 1939 World's Fair. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, so this, but it kind of peters out by the 50s and it's later eulogized by Brad Bird, the movie Tomorrowland, uh, which is like one of the most bizarre movies I've seen like the last decade. Um, and that it doesn't really seem to recognize how kind of fraudulent this utopianism is. And it, it it's, it's literally just developed to be like, Oh, see, the, the corporations want to bring you this better world, not government. Um, right. Because 1936 brings the reelection of FDR inspired by this Gallup and Roper sort of demographic polling, scientific polling, um, you know, more, can we say democratic managerial sort of response to the enlightened despotism tendency from Bernays? And um, essentially, you have big business employing Bernays to declare war on the New Deal. You get the National Association of Manufacturers. You get ads, billboards, and op-eds against the government. It's basically counter-propaganda from the PR man. Although the way that Curtis presents it is that now this is propaganda, as if the New Deal stuff wasn't propaganda, and as if you know, <laughs> this is this is a counteroffensive, you know, uh, to the propaganda of the New Deal. And compared yeah. to compared to like you know the corporate kind of overtures in this direction, maybe it seems you know m- much more sinister. But you know, this is a counter propaganda machine against the state propaganda machine. Well, I, that's strangely left out. I mean, yeah, because well, because what FDR is basically doing is because the capitalist industrial sectors are no longer as profitable as they used to be, and you know the financialization that was ballooning up the economy collapsed. The government basically goes directly into industrial investment in a way, uh, in order to sort of continue to develop the means of production. I mean, it would phrase it this way, obviously, but continue to develop the means of production um, when the when the market won't. And yes, the government did have. Did have yeah propaganda section. Although I will say, the kind of art produced like I know like Orson Welles was sent to Latin America to on like a like a goodwill tour basically and to like make films about Latin America. I think I think Disney was employed to make films about Latin America. Um, and that's why the with Wells the Magnificent Ambersons got taken away from him. He was out doing that, and then they kind of cut the movie out from under him when he was gone. Anyway, um, but it was basically yeah trying to trying to shore up national both foreign policy interests in the western hemisphere but also this kind of process of industrial rebuilding and uh investment in in broad investment in infrastructure Um, right right you can you can definitely see adam curtis's like uh, political lens here yeah so but the other thing that's another interesting modern parallel is you see uh the birth of fact-checking culture uh, in American liberalism, where they kind of, because obviously the capitalist press is ambiguous about this at best, and there's a lot of th- there's a lot of incentives to gain say what's happening because you're not you're robbing the free market of its initiative or whatever. So he induces citizens and tries to give them tools that they can use to check the facts that are being presented th- from them in mass media. Um, the modern form of this is sites like, you know, give got like Pinocchio's or there's a factometer. And then as now, nobody really gives a shit. This, that, that, that's kind of the, that's kind of the dark 
that's kind of the one of the dark truths because ultimately, you know, you're swimming against the stream. You're dealing with all of the incentives that are put in place by this mode of production and by the owners of it. And so this process of just trying to like fact check your way out of it is not going to work because they are, yeah, they are basically playing on people's irrational instincts in such a way that long term uh, is ultimately catastrophic. Um, yeah, and, so- and yeah, you, you, this sort of like democratic or pro democratic like managerialism, you know, it contains like the seeds of its own dissolution in a way. And so by the time you get to the 1939 World's Fair, Bernays has hijacked the concept of democracy in a way. Like before, Bernays, like, there's a living relative of Bernays that is so scathing about Bernays, like, and who he was. He would say that constantly that people were these stupid dopes that could just be duped into anything. And by the time you get to the 1939 World's Fair, you get the big white dome, you have this democracy equals capitalism equation. And you know Bernays doesn't really fucking believe in democracy. But in a dark way, kind of the way that we were talking about with the Nazis and the Soviet Union, there's, there's, there's something more consistent and more honest about the enlightened despot managerial types. It's this kind of fudging of the concept of democracy and democracy equaling capitalism or whatever. That is... You know, there's there's something darkly comic about it. There's something less straightforward and more, of course, it's more marketable. You know, it's more marketable to be a pro-democratic manager than an enlightened despot, right? Like, um, but there's something less honest about it. There's something less consistent about it. And so the way Curtis describes it is that this is a democracy not of active citizens, but of passive desiring consumers. Right. It's the yeah, the triumph of the consumer as the subject of the citizen. Well, and FDR's kind of attempt to bolster up the citizen is ultimately in a way uh, swimming. Yeah, it's swimming against the tide. It's sort of like the conservative who has kind of already lost and is trying to hold ground on this thing that's being that right. Um, no, it, but it's true. It, that's that's very true and very insightful because, yeah, I mean, like, again, this is like proto Keynesian, right? There isn't really like a a school of thought for this. There is chartalism, you know what I mean? But uh, that's not exactly, I don't know, it's a more ambiguous territory. You're not in the, oh, Keynesianism is, you know, left liberal and, um, you know, corporate neoliberalism is the right wing. You know, you don't quite have that, like, way of breaking things down yet. But you do have this sort of state-managed response in the name of democracy that gets countered. And essentially eventually outflanked not quite yet because this is pre-world war ii it gets essentially outflanked like decades after world war ii by this sort of you know corporate uh liberalism and you know anti-interventionism except to set up markets of course then we want maximum intervention but other than that we want you know democracy is capitalism democracy is consumer choice you know, it's market democracy. You vote with your wallet, damn it. You don't, well, you know, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what we see today. Like, all with all this hysteria about people don't want to wear masks or, you know, you know, people are pissed that they can't go to their favorite restaurants or they can't go to Disney World or whatever because that's what it means to exist in democracy. Going to Mission Barbecue and heading, heading to the mall and, you know, buying shit 
that is what it means to be free in America. And that kind of subjectivity is ultimately uh, self-cannibalizing. And it's, it's no wonder that in the late 20th century, narcotics ran rampant through American society because that's, that's the mode of subsistence that you've created in people. And, you know, I, I was watching uh, like the James Baldwin doc, I'm Not Your Negro. There's a great quote from it where he basically he's talking about watch, just watching TV. And he goes, the industry is compelled, given the way it is built, to present to the American people a self-perpetuating fantasy of American life. Their concept of entertainment is difficult to, to distinguish from the use of narcotics. To watch the TV screen for any length of time is to learn some really frightening things about the American sense of reality. We are cruelly trapped between what we would like to be and what we really are. And I think that part of the reason that this works so well in America is because it does tap into a deeply American capacity for self-delusion. We could basically kidnap and enslave millions of people and convince ourselves that they were happy with their station in life for 250 years. Um, And many people have still not accepted that the loss of that was not the ending of a beautiful way of life. Um, and so there are a lot of, you know, very difficult truths about this country that the kind of, I guess, social peace is dependent upon us not really examining. And so I think maybe part of the reason that these ideas had such fertile ground wasn't just like Americans crash materialism, but this. And... That's something that that Adam Curtis never really touches on in the film, but yeah, and similarly, the way that there is this kind of essentially creating the basis for like addiction culture in like the mode of citizenry that the country is supposed to run upon. Um, you know, Augur is a dark thing for the future, but this episode, I really, you know, I really like this episode. It, I guess, this installment of the documentary, I think it it gets a it gets in at the groundwork of so many things that would really would shape the course of America and capitalism in a deeply fundamental way and shows how they developed. I mean, it'd be easy to watch this and get the sense that, you know, like this was, you know, this is the result of the dangerous ideas of this one man. But I think it's pretty clear that he really was tapping into latent needs faced by the mode of production and that like a good businessman, he met those needs. Yeah, I, I do wonder about, you know, Curtis's point of view and how it comes in. We've previously described Adam Curtis as the, you know, the thinking person's Michael Mull. You know, he's got a nice British accent. He's got the BBC's um, gravitas behind him. When you're watching this, you don't think, oh, here's the dance of capital and state. And here's an un- uncritical celebration of a of an essentially conservative statist response that won't actually work against the kind of market liberalism that we've been dealing with throughout our whole lives. No, I mean, you know, you you get the sense that, gosh, wouldn't it be good if we had, like, pro-democracy managers that could, you know, rescue us from this kind of libertarian uh, market, like, uh, despotism? You know, like, which... I, I don't have tremendous love for, you know, like for for corporate libertarian, like enlightened despotism and, you know, managers that know that there are tyrants and and that think of the masses as a bunch of sheeple to be, you know, butthole triggered and twitched around 
Like, I, I don't fucking love that. But God's honest truth is that they outflanked the, the status in the 20th century. And it's like a trauma that we haven't got over yet. We, we have a hard time even imagining how to respond. What do, you, what do you mean by outflanked, though, exactly? They just won? They won. They won in a big way. And, like, most of the attempts to formulate, like, something that can supersede capitalism are looks backwards. They're not essentially progressive. They have a sense of, you know, romantic loss and longing and a glance back that previous Marxists might have described as reactionary if it wasn't towards movements that they preferred. There's uh, an inability to kind of borrow our poetry from the future rather than the past, to paraphrase Marx. Um, And I mean, how do you borrow your poetry from the future? I don't think anyone really fucking knows what that looks like concretely. But um, I guess you can say, you know what it doesn't look like, right? And you know, Adam Curtis, when asked about his political point of view, he dismisses out of hand that he's a leftist, you know, that this is some kind of leftist thing. That's preposterous. He even goes as far to say that, you know, the critiques of individualism that I'm putting out there, you know, they're not altogether different to what people call neoconservatism, which I think is not really a fair, I don't, I don't know, that doesn't like resonate with me about where he's coming from. Um, but I can see, you know, from the Christopher Lash kind of neoconservative kind of, you know, uh, critique of the culture of narcissism kind of stuff that he might be latching into when he says that, no pun intended. But um, yeah, he, he's he's very he, he plays it very close to the vest in terms of what he actually thinks, because he also did make a series of films called The Power of Nightmares, pretty much equivocating like the fundamentalismists with the neoconservatives. Um, so he, I don't, yeah, I'm, I guess I don't really actually care what he thinks. I think, I think that the work kind of speaks for itself. And I think that it offer he's definitely, he's tapping in his overall body of work taps into something that's very real and a very fundamental social problem that I think poses a major obstacle to developing communist politics in a modern context. Um, or even really any kind of like functional, any kind of functional social body. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. The work asks a serious question. I don't think it's too hard to find his politics. I think he's a spirit of 45er. You know, his, do- his documentaries are, are being put out on the BBC. In a way, he's kind of giving you tone poems about the, sp- the spirit of 45 betrayed. Like, the, and that being the post-war settlement, uh, the, the road to British socialism. Like, I, mean, I, th- I, I think from a very black-pilled standpoint, though. From an absolutely black-pilled standpoint, uh, but at the, at the end, though, I am sympathetic because I would honestly, I would, pre- I would prefer state capitalism to like libertarian capitalism, hundred percent. Yeah, but preference doesn't really play into it. That kind of capitalism doesn't, you know, at least historically, and perhaps you know, the the, the Eastern like bloc will rise again, and you know, prove to us that you know, Leninism without Marxism can defeat. Um, decrepit, you know, neoliberal capitalism with orange man characteristics. But, you know, for the history that we have, that kind of status response can't actually take out free market forces or market forces, I should say, because 
the state is good at setting up markets, and that's essentially what it's there for, and protecting the bourgeoisie from its worst successes. You know, again, we're in this state and capital dance that at least Marx, being who he was, wanted to get out of. And maybe he was mistaken. Maybe there's only a status response possible. But I, um, I, you know, I guess coming from a more statist Marxist kind of uh, tradition and having reasoned myself out of it to my own chagrin, you know, like I'm looking for some other path forward besides nostalgia for the New Deal, nostalgia for the spirit of 45 and British socialism, which is the essentially the equivalent of, you know, if you were living in Russia, sort of, you know, looking back at the Soviet Union. But we're not living in Russia. Well, the thing is, like, there's always going to be, I think, a certain looking back quality to any of this stuff, because there was, even in Marx and Engels' time, you're talking about people who are coming from the moral economy of peasant society, being thrown into the machinery of industry and developing capitalism. And a lot of what they were looking back to was the more... Um, reciprocal and social relations of a previous mode of society and how do we translate that into like a into a modern industrial context uh the problem is now we're so far in the future the only thing we can kind of look back to is yeah new deal era post-war you know the sort of post-war labor piece is the thing that that people the only thing that exists in living social memory and you know there is sort of good reason for why people glorify that period. Uh, just to finish out the episode, in you know, March of 1938, we get the Anschluss, the, um, the Nazi invasion of uh, Austria, where they're essentially welcomed as liberators to uh, rejoin greater Germany together. There's the uptick in pogroms, especially against Jews. Um, Freud, being Jewish, uh, flees to the UK with Anna Freud, um, they can only do so due to family connections because, hey, you know who didn't want a flood of Jewish refugees? The UK and the US also. Um, Freud dies, you know, mercifully in uh, September of 1939 and doesn't get to see the worst of his suspicions confirmed. But the Shoah, the, the Holocaust, convinces, you know, the, you know, the, the Western world of the worst essentially, and not just the Western world, but, you know, certainly. World War II shows everyone the ass end of human nature. At the end of the episode, you get Bernays enlisting in the CIA and Anna Freud kind of having some optimism that people can be taught to manage their drives. And that's where the episode leaves you. It's sort of titillating, next time on Century of the South. Yeah, we get into, we get into Anna Freud with... Uh... All that stuff, all that, all that going on there, uh, and what's kind of cool. The other thing that's kind of cool about Curtis is that he makes these very dense. They're really closer to essay films than documentaries because they jump all over the place. I think that's fair. Essay, essay film is a good way to put it. It's 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 like again, Michael Moore is my you know go to point of comparison. There, you know, they're sometimes called documentaries, but it's you know, there's a viewpoint being expressed deftly summarizing a lot of history yes often you know putting central people as the big actor but clearly these people are tapping into the spirit of their times right like the essay film is kind of a subgenre of documentary like I, I think chris marker would probably be the most famous practitioner of it although 
Godard's done it as well. And yeah, it's it's a lot more highly subjective, and they the subject tends to jump all over the place instead of being fixed on a specific thing. Right. I would. If you're, if, and if you're sympathetic to the point of view being expressed in, you know, essentially the South, and especially in Adam Curtis's later work like Hypernormalization, you owe it to yourself to think critically about this essay form. Uh, yeah, like Michael Moore, like Roger and Me is probably the only film he made that was really like a documentary, even though that was also highly, highly, um, very much advancing a point of view. But his subsequent films were, yeah, were basically more essays than anything else, which is what used to drive conservatives so bonkers, because to them, a documentary was something that was on PBS or it was something that would like follow a salesman around for oh, two weeks and just have no voiceover. Anyway, um, yeah, so I guess we can close out there. Uh, but I was going to say like his movies, I feel like the only problem with Adam Curtis is that he's, his movies are entirely samples of what I'm sure is a ton of copyrighted footage. And so clearing all of those samples has always served as an impediment to getting his stuff seen outside of maybe film festivals and the BBC when it aired that one time in the nineties. Right. Right. So, but if, if they could ever clear the samples, I actually feel like he would do really well on Netflix just because his stuff is so totally. compulsively watchable. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, he, he's, he would make the ideal opiatic, like, <laughs> truth trip. <laughs> no, it totally is. Because like, you can watch his movies for, for, like, four hours straight and you want more. Yeah. Um, it's something I think he would appreciate. This one's a little more all over the place. In a lot of ways, it's kind of following up on the things that were covered in the previous episode and we see a lot of the things in the previous episode come to fruition i'd say broadly what this episode is about is the 50s if you watch like hollywood films around that time you get just through cultural osmosis the kind of like freudianism that was in the air and maybe even a part of you know generalized planning in the united states but it's also it starts out talking about kind of the trauma of the english-speaking world coming to terms with the Holocaust and what happened with the Nazis. And I think the base of the problem seems to be that what went wrong with the Nazis was this release of irrationality. They kind of accepted Freud's narrative to a certain extent that these monstrous forces inside of people were allowed to run wild and that caused the Holocaust, as opposed to, you know, the Nazis being like a political party or a political group that unleashed these kind of like latent reactionary things that existed in the particularity of Germany in history. Importantly, we're talking about a bottom up. There are these horrible, awful things that are all there in people all the time. And all that happened is that this emergent irrationality was sort of allowed to express itself through the German Nazi project. It wasn't as much of a social critique of the Nazis specifically. And I think there's wisdom to universalizing this a little bit. It had implications for all humans. But interestingly, and I think this is true culturally, right? It wasn't really about the atomic bomb or what, you know, the allies had to do to win the war. It was specifically about the phenomenon of the Holocaust, specifically about the Nazi state. Right. And this is basically... The bourgeoisie wants to make sure that the dog stays on the leash in the United States. Yeah. Which is, again, that's like a bourgeois way of thinking about it, as opposed to seeing the Nazis politically. Anyway, so it opens, Adam Curtis is kind of describing the situation. 
this great mirror shot of like the suburbs in this uh and a concave mirror like on the front of a car or whatever and he's talking about yeah they thought there were all these like latent fucked up desires just underneath everything although i will say that does kind of exist in the suburbs there is like this weird um almost like balkanized like psychosis that has been built up like in american like middle class society now so yeah i think that i think that's there in the episode like that the like especially when they by the time they get to marcuza that the society that we're being asked to adapt to has a sickness yes they also commissioned a number of studies where they were looking into the soldiers and trying to understand like why does they were breaking down they brought in these freudians who explained that the harsh circumstances of the war brought up a lot of repressed like childhood trauma and other issues that they brought with them to the battlefield and that's why you had all these soldiers being sent back from the front because they completely lost their shit and again like a half truth not entirely false but blinkered politically blinkered right so it leaves off on that and there is it's kind of interesting watching the sort of earnest interview with that one guy or whatever yeah it's it does when it does show you know there's kind of there's something kind of innocent about it. Like you do feel like sometimes when you're watching this that you're seeing people from like another world, you know. No people like this like don't seem to exist as much anymore. <laughs> anyway, so we transition from there to Anna Freud. And Anna Freud was not necessarily the originator of ego psychology, but she was the main like advocate for it and kind of the institution. Basically had the bully pulpit within the institution of psychoanalysis. In Curtis's metaphor, Anna Freud is sort of the pro-democratic managerial representative, right? Like you had something a little darker with advertising. You had something much darker with the Nazis uh, doing a political project that is anti-democratic. And this was supposed to be some kind of pro-democratic managerialism. It's also Freudianism adapting to the imperatives of like Anglican rationalism. You have this thing that's kind of continental in origin that's brought over into the English-speaking world. And so, yeah, we're going to adapt the elements of it kind of in the same way that Barnes adapted it to capitalism. And another guy later in this episode will do the same. Um, Curtis tells the story of this heiress who came to Anna Freud and basically offered up her kids as test subjects, more or less. And then Anna Freud attempted to use these theories to mold them and in one case like freud the gay away (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. i I thought that was a pretty good like shorthand for the critique that this was making overall and although it doesn't really go into the freudian rationale for why this stuff you know why being gay is bad and the political aspects of you know there was a psychoanalytic theory of fascism as like an expression of homosexual desires you know what i mean like Um, which, you know, that's all kind of bracket knowledge. That's fun to know when watching this, but it's not directly articulated here. And then those kids go on to become basically trad people in America. So, you know, mission accomplished for now. Um, I will say though, so ego psychology, part of the reason actually, and one of the figures, major figures of 20th century psychoanalysis who never shows up in this series is Lacan. And I feel like it's worth mentioning that that Lacan, one of his big things was that he was very strongly against the ego school of psychoanalysis. He basically just, he very strongly, again, being a continental guy, objects to this idea that there's some kind of external reality that we can refer to. And he objects to this idea that strengthening the ego is like a worthwhile goal in any sense. Which, because that's what they wanted to do. They basically wanted the ego to be this ideal regulator of your drives and your relationship to the world around you 
Right. Yeah. Although I, I really associate a regulator with the superego for in the Freudian terminology, right? Like right. the self and the sort of now, now, now kind of thing. But I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm losing some nuances. It's just uh, maybe that's one of the things about ego psychology and the way it tends to play out is it's maybe less about that, like the unbounded self and a little more about like, you know, constricting the psychic butthole as you were, if you will. <laughs> Truman signs what's called the National Mental Health Act, which is influenced by the research that was done with the soldiers. And the Manninger brothers are guys who are basically tasked with training a lot of analysts in order to make up for this lack of people capable of doing that work in the United States and with soldiers specifically. And so this is kind of makes the idea that what was key was to change one's ability to be adaptable to the external things that are going around the world and just basically change yourself to the change the world. And what this kind of shows and what this will set up, I think, for the next episode is how for the boomers who were born in this period, this idea was foundational to the world that they existed and were raised in. Right, like all this crazy like guru shit that that's gonna, that they're going to get to in the in later in the twentieth century, like that was all that was already there, but in this like early more rational clinical form, irrationalistic, was, yeah, yeah, like the foundations were already laid for this authoritarian kind of relationship through a you know through a figure that has you know greater insight into the human soul, you know many reincarnations above you in terms of knowledge. I think it's interesting that these figures are often from the continent. You know, they represent a sort of, <laughs> I mean, you know, Marxists tend to think of continental philosophy as, uh, as, you know, true proletarian, you know, insight, but in, in a way for America, it's almost like a uh, representatives of a lost, like aristocratic tradition. I mean, yeah. that's, that's never explicitly stated, but I feel like that's there. And that, you know, they're interjecting this, you know, humanist wisdom. And if there is anything like really perceptive about Freudianism, it's its ability to transmit the cumulative humanities into some generalizations about human behavior, um, you know, and, and power psychology and that sort of thing. It it's I, I don't think I realized how foundational Freudianism was to the 1950s, you know, era of good feelings. And, um, you know, it's, it's a part of the country's history that I think gets as close to like fascism as, as America tends to get, you know, in, in the 20th century. Um, yeah. And I, I don't think I appreciated just how integral that was. And it makes a lot of the feminist engagement with Freud, it motivates it, the radical feminist stuff, in a way that I don't think I appreciated before. Well, a couple of things, too. When I, when I said earlier, because you said about them being this kind of lost aristocracy, um, I got that sense, too, especially with some of these interviews you just see in the film. And that's kind of what I also meant by like a, a lot like people like that don't exist anymore. Because like someone like these European old older psychoanalysts, like there's this one where he's like, you know, talking about like all the successes they got. And he's like, and it, it gave us a swell head, you know? And like, I don't know, I just... <laughs> I almost head. felt like yeah. I almost, I almost, it was it was adorable. I almost felt like Homer Simpson seeing Hans Molman. I just wanted to kiss him on the <laughs> top of the head. Like now, I want you to meet your new brother, Hans Molman. Cowabunga, dudes! Mwah! 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 Give it a try. It's like kissing a peanut. <laughs> <laughs>
See, I thought you were talking about the soldiers and like the purity of their kind of like. Well, that a little bit too, but I was thinking, like, but like that the, the one uh, is African American soldier breaking down and being kind of like apologizing for breaking yeah. down and and talking about how much his sweetheart means to him and how how much he relied on her to get through. The, what the narration says there is that the trauma was not from battle, but it was from childhood which is the what gives lie to the half-truth, right? How could the trauma not be from battle? Yes, there are things that come out from childhood, but World War II was like a cavalcade of horrors. How could that not have triggered this? Right. I mean, yeah, it's, you're basically, it was the era of industrial warfare. You know, you're, you're put into like this giant machine and uh, that's just, you know, yeah, I don't understand how that doesn't completely like damage people in a variety of factors, um, independent of like, yeah, maybe it weakens their ego or whatever, brings up their childhood trauma, but that's not the core issue. Um, There's a poem about World War One and Two that talks about the trauma of industrial warfare from World War One, and that the saddest thing is that they would have to do it again. The other thing I was going to respond to was about Freudianism being so foundational. I think that was. There probably was a little bit of a split, too, because this was also the era of probably the highest level of religiosity in the history of the United States ever. Like you had, I think the, the amount of people, the amount of people who were going, this is the birth of kind of the, the Christian right. But also there was this kind of vague, this is before it really became split, but there was this kind of vague religiosity that you even see echoes on. And again, if you watch the Simpsons, you know, they, they're Methodists, they go to church, right? And everybody, that was this like stock standard aspect of american civic life at the time and, but that was also profoundly influential and wouldn't necessarily fit into this purely purely rational rationalistic context um i suspect the freudian thing was probably more foundational probably in more metropolitan areas and stuff like that but anyway um yeah i think that might dovetail with the leveraging of anti-communism that comes in later so the movie then hops to uh the institute for motivational research uh, by that was run by a guy named Ernest Dichter. Uh, this guy is basically Bernays 2.0. Um, I don't. Do you ever watch The Wire? I watch a few episodes. Um, okay. Not enough to talk intelligently about it. I was gonna say so. In season four, there gets to be like a new gangster who's like the new young blood gangster who's taken everything <laughs> to the next level and doesn't give a fuck about any of the previously accepted like mores from before. But Dichter is like next level in that sense, you know, because he takes all of this and because there was something of a huckster about Bernays, you know, he's very he's very like 20s old world or not like 20s old school capitalist yeah. out to make a buck. You know, he's he's a traveling salesman. He's the trees, the traveling salesman. Yeah. But this guy is like actually doing like precision almost like anthropological research methods and using a Freudian framework in order to even more effectively appeal to people's unconscious instincts in order to sell them things better. And it's situated within a Cold War context in that he believed that essentially capitalist hedonism would help win things out for the West and prevent, in a more rationalistic way, would prevent another sort of Something like Nazism or the triumph of Bolshevism or whatever. In a fucked up sense, he was kind of right. It was kind of effective. Yeah. Now, like there's the old joke about when the after after the wall fell and 
uh, when the Eastern Bloc collapsed, it became clear that the desires that they had was less maybe for like a better civic life and like democracy and more that they wanted like Nintendos and pornography and jeans, mm-hmm. you know, and like the lure of that shit was like a major appeal, you know, and even in like the upper ruling classes of the socialist bureaucracy, they a big reason that they kind of sold the co- the country out from under them was because they were convinced they could get a better deal if they were if they were a capitalist and integrated with the West because they saw how their elites were doing on the other side of the wall, you know. Right. Uh, but anyway, um, so yeah. So we we, we want to talk about some uh, Betty Crocker cake mix. Cake mix. Yes. So the re- <laughs> apparently the reason you add an egg to cake mix is entirely arbitrary, <laughs> and it was because uh, women felt like they were cheating by or not they weren't putting themselves into the product and so the eggs i guess symbolize like the woman's eggs or something yeah yeah it's it's just it's purely scientific the woman is offering her fertility to her husband yeah by cracking an egg and beating it and putting it in there um it you know leverages some kind of fertility symbol to make the woman feel like cake mix isn't cheating that and that was the the group therapy session about products that's the cash value of what um, Dichter got out of that, which, uh, like, apparently it had a big impact on the sales, adding an egg. So, you know, defying economic rationality, you know, like, uh, having it be slightly more resource intensive, slightly more labor intensive, made it more attractive. He also basically invents the research group. And you can see a germ of what's to come later in that. You also, through this sort of thing, discover that people just love talking about themselves. <laughs> um, Fancy that. Yeah. And that can be integrated into consumerism in a big way, too. Okay. So we check back in on Anna Freud and what's probably her girlfriend's kids. Uh, their lives their, their lives are starting to fall apart. It's not going well. So, you know, back down, back, double down on another realm of Anna Freud psychoanalysis to stitch things up and... Uh, Yep, Bob and Abby are getting swept under the rug. They're experiencing breakdowns. And uh, I don't know what happened to the other Birmingham children, but obviously they're not as interesting. Um, so this at this point, the show again checks in on Bernays, who is full-on doing CIA shit and is instrumental in the Guatemalan coup uh involving the uh, – because due to their plans to expropriate lands from the United Fruit Company – um, one of the most like infamous of CIA coups of the 20th century, and there have been many. Um, Bernays basically decides there's yeah there's some irrational fear about you know Americans' concerns about nuclear war and the Soviet Union, so let's just stoke that shit and try and harness the fucking harness the blaze, you know? And yeah, which is not what you would think immediately, like. You would think, oh, no, people are afraid of nuclear war because the Soviets developed the first hydrogen bomb in 1953. We should quell their fears. We should try to make them not afraid of nuclear war. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of a next level move to be like, actually, let's encourage this fear in a fanatical anti-communist direction in order to control it, in order to mitigate it. Yeah. So he starts put it. He creates like a fake. um some sort of firm or whatever that keeps putting up yeah. these press missives about how the, the middle American gov- information bureau. Yeah. The, the Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Guatemala government is becoming increasingly Bolshevized. Look, 
look at all these books they have with Stalin's name on the front of them. Right. Um, and according and, to uh, Curtis, they're just, you know, democratic socialists, basically an early, yeah, an early Allende kind of moment. Well, Allende sends militant next to this guy, probably because he had that example mm-hmm. before him. Um, yeah. And uh, it's a similar issue. 1953, they wanted to nationalize the land of the United Fruit Company that was doing business in Guatemala and owned a significant amount of their uh, of the land to do banana plantations. Apparently, this is where the term banana republic comes from, which I know from a department store. And uh, yeah, good to know. Good to know that's a really racist, colonialist, imperialist term. It's really gross. Like You see them basically gin up all this stuff about... They literally have this press conference with Richard Nixon out there lying his ass off about how... Look at all these books. Look at all these books they have that are communist books that were around the office. You know, clearly this was this was going in a bad direction. Um, and it's funny too, like the you know, because like the stuff Richard Nixon got got for lying about is so minor in comparison to all the shit that was going on at a much deeper level, like this, um, anything. It almost yeah. it almost makes me sympathetic to the conspiracies that Watergate was a setup on him. <laughs> uh yeah. I mean, just, you know, listening to Kissinger's advice about continuing the Vietnam for like Vietnam War for twice as long for election reasons alone. Yeah. Is like is sickening. Um but also yeah, I I didn't know that he was involved in this. I wasn't sure that that was Nixon because, you know, I don't think it was explicitly stated and uh, a frumpy white guys look alike. But um, oh, it was it was Nixon. It looked a lot like Nixon. Um, so I'm willing. Yeah, I'm willing to believe that. Um, yeah, five o'clock and, and shadow think, Nixon. I got it. I got it up right now. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think that was after the coup. Right. And they're oh, look at all this literature we found. See what a commie. Um, but it turns oh. out Al- Alburn's had no links to moscow but who cares like we have a bernays was like this is brilliant we have a communist threat close to our shores we can spin this yeah and it's he couldn't even bother to shave to go legitimize the government that we could (laughs) unreal yeah come on so from there we go into mk ultra well before before we get to mk ultra I, i know you're gonna be excited to talk about mk ultra but um after the CIA coup in Guatemala in 1954, Howard Hunt, um, who is C- uh, involved with the CIA, was he a director? I forget. Uh, it's said on the screen, but, you know, my notes are great. Howard Hunt says, essentially, what we wanted was a terror campaign and compared what the CIA wanted to do to, like, I think Nazi terrorism, essentially, to demoralize the population um, of Guatemala. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That clip. Jesus Christ. That's an incredibly insight. It's an incredibly insightful statement about what's going on. And I wonder what that clarity means to him. Did he feel that was justified as he was was saying it? Because it seems like the kind of thing that indicts itself. Yeah, he's and he's literally saying it on camera. <laughs> like, what, was, was this like a regretful like interview afterwards, or where he's was he like, oh yeah, yeah, we were just you know pulling from the Luftwaffe playbook, you know? I have no idea because like it's not like it was like he had like a you know 
Adam Curtis had like a sombrero on with a camera hidden like in the top part poking out like it was lit the camera was there he had a mic on like it's that's there's so much part of the reason the only thing that keeps me from getting like too deep into conspiracy countries there's so much shit that's just like out in the open you know yeah no 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 he um he seemed pretty I don't know was it comfort it was very forthright it was very he was very like confident about saying it he wasn't well, like oh it was kind of like this he was like no no no. this is what we were doing he's just a soulless operator i mean that's it how do you live with yourself knowing that you're doing that like i yeah anyway well that brings us to the next uh subject mk ultra and yeah. the power mind control that the cia attempted to develop damn it um, one, one more one more thing one more thing yeah. one more thing that um after the clip about Howard Hunt comparing the CIA's the CIA to Nazis. We get bananas from source to shortcake, like, and it brings it all back to like selling people the products that are you know derived from imperialism, like. Yeah, the, the literal fruits of empire. It's a pretty masterful stroke on Curtis's part as an SAS and really brings the terror, you know, really links the terror on the periphery to the plenty of the core and the, like, insipid lifestyle of the core. Like, it really, um, yeah, it, it shows you the link, like, very clearly in a way that, like, I don't know. We, we spend a lot of our time trying not to think about because if you think about it all the time, it drives you fucking nuts and you're one of those people. So actually, I've been j- trying to jump to MK Ultra more to move the episode along than to that uh, I have a lot to say about it. The only thing I would take issue with his because he does talk to somebody who claims that her memories are basically wiped out by this program. Uh, basically, within MK within MK Ultra, the CIA believed came to believe that it was possible to do literal mind control, and they they say they believed whether they did whether they did or not. The Soviet Union was going was capable of working on doing something similar it's possible because we all you know had the same they were all work pulling from the same pool of nazi scientists that they kidnapped so uh you know maybe there maybe there's some truth to that but i mean i'm sure they thought they could do it like it fits into the structuralist kind of like way of thinking where oh yeah tabula rasa just fucking you know wipe the slate clean and you know just fill it with stalin well and they and in this period too the cia it like LSD had recently been discovered. Nobody really knew how it worked or what it was capable of. So a lot of MKUltra was them experimenting with LSD, both on unwitting subjects and on each other. I, apparently they used to like microdose at office parties. Oh man. Um, At, well, yeah. yeah. Fast forward, you know, 60 years later to Silicon Valley. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So Curtis claims that little actually came from it because their conception of the mind was flawed, and which is probably true. But I think it's possible that more came from this than, I mean, because at some level, I think that's what they want us to believe, man. Like, because if they were able to, if they were able to do some crazy shit, they wouldn't want people knowing about it. You know, it's this is a this is a problem with the existence of this. It's like a, it's a black box. There's all this stuff where you just you don't know what's in the fucking box. What's in the box? Yeah, we might learn like, you know, 60 years down the road. Well, yeah. I guess it is 60 years down the road, isn't it? We should know. Now, I guess not enough of them are dead yet. I don't know. So, from there, we detour into 
Marilyn Monroe. For the purposes of this film, especially being about the 50s era psychoanalysis, it's kind of the perfect thing you want to put in there to showcase the limitations of it and that they weren't able to help her address, you know, whatever her issues were. Yeah. Um, the, the main point here is that there was a high profile failure of psychoanalysis, something really like that shook people before a wave of critique. So Ralph Greenson, you know, is, you know, top in the biz psychoanalysis became Marilyn Monroe's uh, analyst you know, introduced her to like a family treatment with, so basically like treated her like his daughter more or less and like incorporated her into, you know, a family structure. And one of, apparently his other patients was like, well, you never did this with me. And he's kind of like, yes, but you, you, you have no idea how, you know, how little she has of, of a family structure. Well, it's also like you weren't, you weren't that messed up. Right, right. Well, but that's a, that's the same thing for them. You know, ha- having family right. structure is, and this is a deep conservative conviction to this day, constantly leverage against single mother households or gay households or, you know, poly households or whatever, right? Like, right. you can't have a healthy family without, you know, the natural and the spanka, you know? Well, you have to have the father there to break the bond of the mother and child, otherwise... You know, you turn into Norman Bates. Yeah, and you got you gotta institute the incest taboo. The, yeah, the, but this basically lays the groundwork for the counteroffensive against psychoanalysis. So they bring in Arthur Miller talking about how you know it's at least a particular form of psychoanalysis that you that took hold in the United States in this period was a part of this idea, part of this process of denying like strife or pain or anything like that. And that's where most of like the deepest insights that people come from. You also, this is where Herbert Marcuse starts to step in and points things around and says, this is, you know, again, continental tradition pulling from like even Freudianism saying, no, it's a sick society. That's the problem. Yeah. And this is where Curtis's voice is probably heard the loudest, like, you know, in terms of how he's editing it, the, interview with Arthur Miller. It's like, listen, you can't cure trauma. You have to let suffering inform freedom. Um, you know, that seems that kind of goes as an indictment of this whole thing. Uh, there's a book that's published called the hidden persuaders that just lays out the critique that Curtis is drawing from to a degree. And then Herbert Marcuse, does have, you know, some, some thoughts in common with this kind of like psychoanalytical fear of fascism. But, you know, this empty prosperity that is presented in this culture will erupt into that kind of violence. Like, you can't just repress this in the way that they want you to. The society that you're adapting to is sick. Right. Inner emotional drives aren't evil. Repressing these drives causes the evil. Um, It's the society, really, that has the sickness. It's not the individual sickness simply aggregates into the Holocaust. Like, that's not it. And what's kind of cool, and I think they actually bring in MLK at the end, who offers maybe the best the best take we've gotten this entire time. And it kind of go, goes to show why so many look to him as a moral leader, because he basically lays it out. Look, you know, obviously, you. I'm, a, I'm madly paraphrasing here, of course. Obviously, you want to work on your issues. You don't want to be you know, just a wreck. You don't want to be schizophrenic. Um but, you know, if you exist in 
an unjust society, a certain level of maladjustment in your personality is both moral and good and good for you. Right. Mm. Like, and he's proud. He's proud to be maladjusted to racial discrimination, segregation, to religious bigotry and to economic inequality when there's just plenty all around. Modern psychology has a word that is probably used more than any other word in psychology. It is the word maladjusted. It is the ringing cry of modern child psychology, maladjusted. Now, of course, we all want to live the well-adjusted life in order to avoid neurotic and schizophrenic personalities. But as I move toward my conclusion, I would like to say to you today, in a very honest manner, that there are some things in our society and some things in our world for which I'm proud to be maladjusted. And I call upon all men of goodwill to be maladjusted to these things until the good society is realized. I must honestly say to you that I never intend to adjust myself to racial segregation and discrimination. I never intend to adjust myself to religious bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few and leave millions of God's children smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. Right, and this is, this maybe is the first kind of outline at the limits of focusing on the self beyond all of course like the doomer stuff and him you know portraying these people as icarus more or less and constantly constantly exceeding their trying their reach is constantly exceeding their grasp like it the point that he's kind of making is yes you know like people should work on themselves to a certain extent but if you exist in a society that is fundamentally unjust and contains exploitation and all of these horrors like if you are perfectly adjusted for that you're actually kind of fucked up and you don't want you want to maintain a certain level of unease and maladjustment because if everybody just adapts to these things like that's that's morally horrific and somebody is going to be maladjusted no matter what because they have to eat all the shit they have to take all of the take all of the labor and all the problems of the society on and be the ones doing the labor of fixing those th- or managing those things yeah, plugging the hole as it, you know, like, you know, there are the ravages all around you and you're kind of like, I don't know, you're, you're pouring dirt into like a sinkhole to try to like plug it. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no way that that can't cause some pain, some friction. And it defies a hedonist ethic where pain is bad. Pleasure is good. If you have higher notions of the good you have like a sense of justice or whatever like you just can't avoid pain all the time well and if everybody gets turned into like these happiness machines as herbert hoover called them you you it's that's acid at the fabric of on the fabric of society because if everybody is just these individual like pleasure maximizing robots like you, there's no base like it doesn't matter that somebody else is getting exploited it doesn't matter that you're creating these massive tensions with society because that's all ex- that's all those are all externalities that's all external to you and yeah that's not sustainable yeah i think what king says is actually a good compass for where we want to 
kind of go with our overall project here because yeah, you don't want to be like a raging ball of like mental illness that can't do anything. Like nobody wants to be, but like, how do you, how, how can you be okay in a society so sick? Right. Yeah. Um, it's, I sometimes think of this as, you know, being an agent from the future and having to blend in with a society that, you know, you feel is barbaric, right? Like, mm-hmm. because you can't make everything line up with your communist ethics overnight. You have to like internally at the, at the very least dignify some of your pain and some of your discomfort with the society, you know, and certainly mm-hmm. King is externalizing it too in a, in a way that is like profoundly constructive in a yes. way that I think very few of us have ever uh, even touched a notion. No, it's just like just a little drop of how constructive that that kind of externalization can be. Obviously, you know, if you're ever a lib in the United States, and even if you're conservative, like you have a tremendous respect for how this guy uh, brought these things to the forefront. And so it's just, it's just a, a question of, you know, how do you deal with this disease? How do you deal with this like sense that something is wrong without losing your goddamn mind? Yeah. Well, and there's this part, there's this thing on the culture of the, it, I think that emerges somewhat on the culture of the internet where, you know, I'm, everybody is the smirking Wojak where it's a mask and the, he's like angry and crying behind it. You know, like everybody, I'm, every, I'm not, I'm not mad. You're mad. I'm cool. You know, every, everything else is lame but me, the arbiter of cool. I think what's good about... Because, okay, King comes out of the Christian tradition. And what's one of the great, like, moral innovations of the Christian tradition is the body of Christ being this realm of repentance and integration for people who sin and fail, you know? And... The left doesn't really have anything like that. That's why things like degenerate into like these ritual circular firing squads. There isn't really any clear like path to redemption for anybody. And yes, of course, in Christianity that can become gamified or whatever. And George Bush, who was like, I can I can write off all the blow going AWOL and this and that and pressuring some lady into abortion because hey, I'm a, I, I repented my sins and I stopped drinking. But even so, having something like that is kind of socially necessary in order to, in order to yeah, have things not just descend into endless mutual recriminations. And what's also, and that's tied to King's insight here, where, um, yeah, I'm proud to be maladjusted these things. So if I if I seem mad or if I seem triggered or if you're just replying to what I say with the gif of that one like pussy hat lady like screaming when Trump was elected like it's like you know what it's not the worst thing in the world to be fucked up about something that's fucked up and on some level like yeah I mean nobody wants to seem triggered nobody wants to seem not cool or like a weirdo but I think that some of that is a little again it's inevitable and not something that we should seek to completely repress in order to do some fucked up like Alinskyite social integration. Yeah. I mean, there's like a, there's a virtuous form of 
being able to integrate all of the negatives and still kind of maintain your composure. That is the essence of, of cool. You know, yeah, I'm at peace with the things that are not good here, but I, you know, that's not going to affect how I present myself, how I, you know, maintain my level headedness every day. Uh, And, uh, and that can quickly slide into this vicious form that is, it's just a shadow of what it's supposed to be. It's not integration. It is integration, or excuse me, it is repression that is masquerading as integration. And someone being like, yeah, I can acknowledge that. I'm cool. I'm fine with that. Like, but it's just, those are just words. Like if there's a deep way in which this should be traumatic, you should not be fine with it. And it should be genuinely hard to reconcile the kind of things that you have to put forward to be a confident individual in this society when these things are so deeply wrong and in a way, a lot of us just have to participate in them. And I, I say a lot of us, we all have to participate in them. And, you know, accumulating some level of guilt or bad conscience or whatever it is, is almost inevitable for having intercourse with this, you know, awful way of life every day. It chips away at the person that we all want to be if we have, especially a communist ethic or something approaching you know, King's Christian ethic, like, regardless of, you know, what form that takes, it chips away at that every day. And so it shouldn't be so easy to integrate. That's a life's work. That's, and I think Marcuse is good about this too, is that it's not just the community that this destroys, it's the self. The the Mm. self ends up this, bag of the false positivity that erupts into violence. And that is absolutely (laughs) where a lot of like fascist urges can come from. I mean, I guess at least fascists have the, you know, the two minutes hate or whatever. And, but American liberalism had it too. (laughs) Like, or, you know, American conservative liberalism, whatever the, the post-war consensus had that communist two minutes hate to let it out well they're still be- and, they're still beating up on russia yeah yeah well and i mean strangely now yeah it's more of a liberal thing to do but yeah it's still there that stuff is still there and it's just that the right is more focused on the enemy within well yeah i mean and for the right it's a little more china too like they 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 take you know china inherited the mantle of the communist flag or whatever so it's them anyway yeah um so the episode ends uh, with the deaths of the kids that Anna Friday was looking after. Um, they, I think the daughter, I guess she basically kills herself at the Freud Institute. Yeah, at Freud's old house, at, at, yeah. in the Freud house. You know, you can't get more symbolic than that. Yeah. And the, the episode ends with Curtis basically saying, in a very cheery tone... <laughs> And with very bouncy music (laughs) underneath. Uh, The next episode will document the rise of the enemies of the Freud family and how they sought to counteract all of this through the liberation of the self. And you get the sense from his tone that that's not going to work either. Right. Um, And the episode then ends with a montage of my, what I can only assume are my online enemies who (laughs) are mad after I own them so bad, epically online. 
Yeah, for, yeah, the primal scream therapy and such. For all those lies, then you know what it means to be blue. That's it for this week. This will be the first of will likely be a three-part, but possibly four-part series of episodes. I chose this partially because of the theory contained within, but also because it's representative, I think, of Adam Curtis's overall body of work. And his work serves as a vector to think about the subjectivity that's deliberately cultivated in late capitalist society. Both deliberately, I think, as a social engineering thing, but also uh, simply as a result of capitalist relations subsuming every aspect of life. And this subsumption seems to make it especially difficult, in the United States in particular, to organize workers as workers. And this is something that I think we're going to have to think about, continue to think about. This has been an ongoing conversation for some time. If we really want to try to conceptualize a way to revive the workers' movement and to do in a modern context what socialist organizers have done historically... And, I think, it also provides a way to think about the relationship of the individual activist or militant to what it is they're doing and to the project of attempting to build a movement. And how do you... How do you unbalance... How do you balance the imperatives of self-care and... Securing a living for yourself while also contributing something to a broader effort to move past the current political and organizational impasse that we're in. So hopefully we can continue this conversation and hopefully you got something out of this. I don't know. Anyway, uh, shouts out to my sister. Apparently she's been recommending this to people. I didn't even know she listened. So, uh, thanks. Uh, and if you were sent here by my sister, uh, I don't know what the hell you make of any of this. Uh, hopefully, hopefully you pulled something from this. Hopefully this is enjoyable for you. Uh, yeah. All right. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.